0: Hello and welcome to the last episode in this series of Footprints. You're listening to me, Pomihama, as Bathscape winds up its 2021 walking festival. Coming up on the show, we'll hear from a number of the amazingly different walks that took place. But before she was allowed to go and lie down in a darkened room, I grabbed a quick catch up with organiser Lucy Bartlett. So hello, Lucy. Hello. You must be exhausted from running the walking festival, and I'm absolutely exhausted from walking the circuit of Bath on Sunday. But anyway, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's, it's over now. How did it all go? How are you feeling about it all?
1: I'm feeling really pleased. I think, particularly um, given the year that everybody's had, and last year not having been able to do any guided walks at all, this year it was just phenomenal. Most uh, Most of the walks were fully booked, most people turned up people that didn't turn up on the whole, it was because they they didn't want to risk the safety of other people, you know, with a sniffle or whatever. And so, yeah, everybody got around safely. The weather was great. Um, couldn't, couldn't have hoped for anything better, really.
0: Fabulous. And just give us a little overview of some of the walks that took place. I know you had some bat walks.
1: We had four bat walks, which are great. Um, those are one of the things that the children really, really love coming on. Uh, I, I did one at Bar City Farm and got a couple of kids to dress up as bats, and they seem to enjoy that. And we saw lots of bats. The bats came out really early at Bar City Farm, slightly catching me uh, off guard. But yeah, again, those are, are also one of the walks that are really weather dependent. Bats liking it to be warm and dry, and they won't come out if it's not. So we always have to check the weather for those and potentially cancel them if, if they don't go ahead. But this year, it was the weather was. Very good. Very good for bats. Very good for walking. Yes. So we always enjoy the bat walk.
0: So you you had social history walks, which we'll hear some of today in in this podcast. But you also had a pilgrimage, didn't
1: you? That's right. Yep. Dorothy House and Bath Interfaith Group joined forces to do a long pilgrimage and a shorter pilgrimage on the 18th, which is World Pilgrimage Day. And so they walked from the church in Cainsham to Bath Abbey. And then they picked up a group in Lansdowne who were doing a shorter walk and they stopped in some of the churches along the way. They were raising money for for Dorothy House, but also stopping and, you know, having a a shared experience.
0: And I know the people that I walked alongside talked about the breadth of walks that were on offer. So so there was somebody on Mr B's walk who you'll hear saying um, how much he enjoyed the fact that it wasn't about Georgian Bath. It was about a completely different angle. Did you have any good comments?
1: Yeah, I picked up lots of comments from walkers on the walks I went on as well, and I think the the real learning from us is that people really do like a walk with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Although some some of the longer walks without a theme were also really popular, but the experts were just happy to share their knowledge, and so we had the the architecture ones. And I think really again not really focusing on the things that Bath is really well known for but picking up on some of those things that people don't necessarily know about or looking at them from a slightly different angle and we had that with Bath's Uncomfortable Past and with Holmes of Hutch's a couple of the walks that you you went on but also just looking at the circus in a huge amount of detail there's just so much richness about the architecture and the history just in that one space and so Kirsten and Elliot who led that walk could, could just talk to people about what the what was in the mind of the planner, what some of the stories are behind some of the architectural features there. So, yeah, everything from that to um, kind of more up-to-date social history as well.
0: There were so many walks I would have liked to have taken part in, but presumably they're going to get repeated next year. Will there be a next year? Tell me there'll be a next year.
1: There will always be a next year. Hey. I was just looking at my diary and thinking the most likely dates will be the 10th of September to the 25th of September 2022. So everybody get that in your diary and walk leaders will be hearing from me.
0: Fantastic. But not before you've been for a little holiday, I imagine.
1: Uh, Yes, I'm taking a bit of time off in October. I am having a slight break from walking because I'm going to try and learn how to surf. (laughs) Oh, how exciting. You're not going on a walking holiday, Lucy. (laughs) Well, I imagine I'll abandon the surfing quite quickly. I will be taking my walking boots (laughs) going to Devon. (laughs) So,
0: Lucy, we wish you all the best in your recovery from the amazing amount of planning and organisation and time and effort you put into creating this beautiful walking festival for us. And thank you also to the numerous walk leaders who gave up their time, especially for all of us, on behalf of all the listeners and walkers, thank you very, very much.
1: Well, thank you, and to our wonderful walk leaders.
0: Now, one of the walks arranged on the very first weekend of the festival was around the centre of Bath, looking at the social history of the LGBT plus community. Around 25 of us gathered outside the War Memorial near the Royal Crescent to embark on an LGBTQ plus history walk around the centre of Bath. As you can hear, it was very noisy. (laughs) <laughs>
2: Poor Robert.
0: A couple of walkers gave me their thoughts as
2: we went along, but we start with our leader, Robert House. Uh, one of the characteristics of the LGBT community is a lack of collective memory. If you were a religious minority or an ethnic minority from another country, stories get passed on, The Uh, And people regularly talk about what happened years and years ago. That very rarely happens in the LGBT community, simply because each generation finds itself, goes out on the scene, has its own private life, there's not a lot of communication across the generations. So what prompted you
0: to come today on this walk?
3: Uh, well, it's always nice to have a bit of a reminder of social history, and I think the uh, it's it's it, uh, LGBTQ plus history is not something we tend to celebrate in Bath, and it's something we should make sure we record because it's played it's had a significant impact on people's lives for many years. So, so yeah, it's a it's an important thing to. To make sure we pass this knowledge down through generations as well, actually.
2: Male homosexuality was completely illegal in this country until 1967, and 1967, for for gay men in particular, bisexual men, is the great watershed. Uh, prior to that date, for gay men. Uh, any uh, sexual contact between males was illegal, whether it was in private or in public. The crucial thing was in private. Uh, Many uh, societies and civilizations have discriminated and tried to stop gay sex and gay behavior in public, but in Britain it was particularly repressive because the law applied in private as well. So, if the police found in any way that you'd been involved or even suspected of involved in same-sex behaviour, you could and were often were prosecuted. And the other great threat for people is
3: black. was um when i was 16 the age of consent for gay sex was 21 and you know it was horrific what that difference did you know growing up as a teenager you used to feel wrong and you used to feel dirty because you knew you were gay but society and the law said that you couldn't do those kind of things until you were 21 so and when you were that age five years is an awfully long time so it was incredibly harmful
4: I think what Robert said about the LGBTIQ plus community not having any collective memory, I think that hit me quite hard, because I'm not from Bath or Bristol or the area in itself, so I'm quite interested in learning more about the general queer history of West England. But it reminds me of how important these things are. And it's quite generational as well, I think. Um, Because we were just at a pub as well. When I think about the local queer pub that I used to go to, like we had about four or five in that city, but it was very much that different, different generations went to different pubs as well to meet their friends and other people.
0: Robert said that nowadays a gay pub would be advertised all over the internet and be very upfront about its whereabouts.
4: It wasn't always that
2: way, of course. Uh, if you talk about a gay pub, any time up to getting on to the 19, up to 1980, uh a gay pub was a very quiet hole-in-the-wall place. It's, uh, uh, it certainly didn't... It may, not, it may have advertised its presence, but not its attractions. Um, generally speaking, it would get a name purely by word of mouth. Somebody, probably a sort of charismatic person, went there, and others followed them. But in Bath, the main pub is the Garrick's Head, which is over there, and just outside. Um, and the Garrick's Head, well, my mother said it had a reputation before the Second World War, um, and. The likelihood is, is it went back to the 19th century and probably because of its association with the theatre. Theatre people could get away with things that the you other know, people couldn't and so they would attract people there. It was big good business at the party. So it, it was a gay party before 1967.
0: The struggle to gain equal rights was taken on by two groups in the 1970s. The Campaign for Homosexual Equality and the Gay Liberation Front. In Bath, the latter morphed into Gay West, which has been mainly a social and support group, but it's also carried out some political activities and it's flourished for the last 50 years. We finished at a coffee house, which became a sanctuary for the community during the initial years of the HIV outbreak of the 1980s.
2: And this was run by Gay West. And there used to be a big round table that we had to move so that everybody could get in. But during the 1980s, the atmosphere was toxic. And the tabloid, because it, made, well, it was toxic before, but the AIDS epidemic made it 10 times worse with the um, uh, tabloid press talking about walking time bombs and gate and that sort of thing. And for two hours on a Saturday morning, this was a sort of haven where people could come. And it was packed. People would be inside the room, down the stairs, uh, you had to make tea, you had to sort of go down, get the kettle and carry it upstairs. And it was so primitive and probably not uh, in health and safety. But I think this is actually one of the most important buildings in the history of uh, the LGBT movement in Bath.
0: Robert has published a book called Gay West: Civil Society, Community and LGBT History in Bristol and Bath. And it can be found in all good bookshops. get ready to relax and slow right down now next we're going to hear from victoria wells who told me about a walk i sadly missed it was called
5: my postcard walk to you what i'm really interested in is people that can't move that far and be able to have access to your podcasts so they can experience the outdoor environment and the walks without actually having to do it themselves. Because I'm very interested in imagined Movement and how we can imagine being in this space without actually necessarily being there. And I think podcasts is a really unique aspect, especially in a walking green environment, say if you're lying in bed in a hospital, that's a really lovely thing to think about the outdoor space or listen to narratives and that's how the postcard walk evolved through my own personal experience of going through hip revision surgery and whilst I was waiting couldn't walk very far apart from out to my garden so I did a postcard every day and sort of use my own near green space as my healing space, but also documenting my waiting time, because you're in a queue for surgery. For quite a few years now, I've been involved with Bathscape from an accessibility point of view. And obviously when they got the funding, they needed a walk that was sort of scaled right back to not walking very far. But I'm, I'm an advocate of slow walking because everyone walks very fast and the, the joy of the postcard walk is you have to walk slowly and you have to stop and you have to be still and you have to observe. So when I'm, I did the walk last Saturday, everyone met me and I'd already set up where we were going to stop to give out the postcards and I, I led them from the starting point to where we were going to pick up the postcards but I made them walk all really slowly and and what's the joy for me is that actually they were walking at my pace but they didn't know that because I didn't tell them that so they were already actively engaging in, in the environment without consciously being aware of it other than the fact that they were going slowly and obviously when we walk slowly we take in a lot more so um, we got to the postcards and I handed them out and I asked them not to look at their phones for the whole hour so I made sure that I was the timekeeper and that all they had to think about was to find a space It's only about sort of 500 meters at the max they could go and find their own spaces by the riverbank overlooking the meadows there's loads of um, benches and there was no rules about drawing or writing it was just to be able to sit with a blank card and and i did encourage obviously they bring in a dress and i'd got a stamp and i'd give that to them at the end so people split up and i just was there very much in the background if they need me but mainly it was just to gently encourage the observation of nature in a slow pace and um, it was nice because we had someone who was partially sighted came along and so I was able to say listen but also the other members of the group listened so they're they're taking in all the senses but in a slow pace and um, I just sort of went round and then towards the end I just said you've got 10 minutes I please encourage you to walk back slowly to the finish point. Don't worry, we'll wait for you. So that will happen. And then when everyone came to the end point and I handed out the stamps, the conversation started and it talked about postcards and how we don't write anymore, and I've said, actually, it's good for our neural pathways to write. Like walking is good for our neural pathways. And then about the fact that we don't write anymore and we're all on screens and we're all looking in a certain position, but we're actually not looking up and out because all these images come to us in a very fast pace. When we're in a My Postcard talk to You, you're in a slow space and you can look in a slow way to gather in the data around you, or not data, but the environment around you, shall I say and document it in any way that you want whether it's through words, drawings, marks or you know I had um, one young chap that just coloured it the whole postcard in green and just wrote meadows across with it and I thought that's really good pop art sort of you know interpretation of being out in the green space but the conversation was beautiful afterwards because everyone was talking about how they used to collect things and sending postcards and the fact that they kept their postcards because people generally keep postcards and reminiscing about all those conversations that you have so yeah so that's my postcard walk to you really. it's a activity based walk that slows down our system
0: At the start of the second week of the festival, intriguingly, Mr B's Emporium of Reading Delights walking book group led a walk uncovering some of Bath's uncomfortable past. This walking tour has been researched and developed by the University of Bath and you'll also hear the voice of Richard White, senior lecturer from Bath Spa University, who was with us to bring the history to life. Mr B's provided a book list to accompany the walk, which you can find in the programme notes.
6: If you haven't been to the Walking Book Group, it's basically a book group for people who can't sit still for very long. Uh, And we talk about books in good company as we walk around, essentially. The books we're talking about today all have to do with the British Empire slavery, our contemporary reckoning of the past. The book that I've been reading is Empire Lands by Safdam Sungera, uh, which has just absolutely blown my mind. And I'm Sam, uh, and I work for Mr. B's Emporium of Reading Delights. All I do really is read books and talk about books. All right, so we're gonna start off just by walking along York Street and out that way. All right, follow me.
0: Locked, even when you're not in your walking book group
6: yeah I walk as uh, I walk as my way to get to work and back um, and also I'm an incredibly slow reader but I'm also a professional reader as a bookseller so a lot of my reading I do is audio most of the novels that I read I actually listen to
0: are you mr B I'm
6: not I'm mr. D, I'm mr. D. <laughs> mr. D. <laughs>
1: So I've always associated Bristol more with the slavery, but I don't know why oh, not Bath. Steep.
7: Bath is steeped in <laughs> it. It's <laughs> absolutely. This entire estate we're going to walk into was built as a speculation for those slave owners. they were coming here to network you know it was like you wouldn't want to go where the ports were you know it's kind of smelly stinky stuff you go where the nice buildings and the nice people are. Hannah Moore lived over there. Hannah Moore? Oh yes. Yeah so she was um, rather for feminists of a kind of rather dubious position Um, uh, but um, you know she, she was responsible for getting Wilberforce to Bath. Um, and uh, organised one of the earliest campaigns, uh, a boycott of sugar.
4: Some of the slave masters actually looked after their slaves very well. Some treated them humanely. It's not a good and bad thing. It's a continuum, I think.
7: That's a very difficult position to take up, though, because you're talking about people who were captured in West Africa. Um taken all the way across the ocean, so forced yes. migration. And then they were enslaved, yes. not only for the whole of their life, yes. but forever. Their yes. children were born into slavery and became slaves. So there's a brutality at the core of that.
0: Okay. Oh, I, I agree. Yes.
7: So we walked right past a rather um, little small hotel at number 15. And that was owned by the great-grandparents of someone who is a literary, as readers, you you all know, George Orwell. And one of the sequences in George Orwell's 1984, in fact the core activity of the hero of 1984, is what he's doing, if you remember, he's rewriting history. He's editing bits out of the newspapers. a bit like what the Chinese are doing at the moment about Tiananmen Square. Well, of course the British perfected that around the story of slave ownership. The reason we know that is because they had a very significant payout when the British government finally, as a result of the efforts of people like Hannah Moore and uh, Wilberforce, the status of slavery was abolished in the British Empire. We know that because the slave owners, not the slaves, not the people that were enslaved, forever you know, the slave owners were compensated, and there was 20 million pounds paid out, so that's several billion in today's money. Which we, as taxpayers, we've only just finished paying off that debt. And uh, George Orwell's um, so they were Blair's um, his great 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 grandparents were living and made a claim at uh, from the number 15 just down there, so there's a literature all over the place, and it's not just Jane Austen.
8: You hear about Georgian Bath and and all of that, and Jane Austen, that kind of thing. You don't really hear about this aspect of where a lot of the wealth came from, which is as he says, a less pleasant past, really.
0: And is is that what prompted you to come on the walk, to find out more?
8: Uh, In part, yeah. And and in part, it it sounded an unusual walk, you know, a walk around the city, but with a different... um, not looking at architecture or Georgians or that sort of thing, a different way of looking at Bath. And
0: have you read any of the books on the book list?
8: I'm afraid I haven't. (laughs) My guilty secret is no.
0: Do you think this is a particularly hard subject to read about?
8: I haven't really ever thought about it like that. I think there's a lot that is kind of as much covered up it's just not talked about or not not out in the open and it's a very significant part of britain's past really an empire and all of that you know you've got all these cities bristol bath and liverpool that owe their existence and their wealth to this kind of what today we consider to be a very unpleasant trade you know it's it's a were you taught anything about it at school oh gosh school was a very long time ago <laughs> I don't, I don't think I was. I, I, well, I don't... Not discovered
4: not, or they've been known. Not
8: much. Not much. No, not really.
4: What is he looking for, Sam?
6: Uh, I don't know. Oh. It's not on my map, Tommy. Oh,
0: OK. <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't
6: know.
0: We're, we're, we're walking down oh, sure. to time Richard yeah. is I'm waving on. by a length of walk.
7: Sam, just in passing, mention the Reverend Alexander Scott. He received one of the biggest payouts for... Um, in inverted commas, the release of the people he held enslaved. In fact, all of those went straight into an indentured servitude for their life. And um, it always fascinates me that he's buried here. When he died, they were just loyal members of this church, or he didn't get the grand burial that some others have got. And he bought the plantation where there had been a huge great rebellion. So anybody with any Barbadian connections? will have heard of Busa. There's a statue to him at the airport when you arrive. Boussa's rebellion was put down with extreme brutality. And then, of course, once you killed all your workers, you've got to wait until things get better, and the value of the plantation uh, fell. And uh, the Reverend, Alexander Scott, man of the cloth, um, he hangs on in there for his payout, and he gets a very handsome payout. We're nearly at
6: the end of the walk. Uh, You'll see on your materials that there is a long version of the walk that you can do at your leisure another day. But for now, we're going to turn left onto the circus, down to Queen's Square, and I will drop you off at Green Park at the bottom of the hill. Thanks, My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Lucy, for putting on the festival. Great. Well, I need to to go back to work.
0: Uh, Oh, what was that? Was that a bat?
4: Hello, I'm Julia from Bathscape, Uh, my colleague Dan and I have been out looking for bats in both Bath City Farm where I am now and at Royal Victoria Park and this is what we found. Bats are amazing little animals and quite misunderstood in my opinion and in the UK we've got 18 different species and 12 of those are found in the Bath area. All British bats eat insects. Um, So you'll be pleased to know that none of the bats we get here feed on blood. There are only three species of vampire bat and they are all found far away in Central America. So all the bats we get here are generally eating things like midges and mosquitoes. Um, Some of the bigger bats will eat large moths and flying beetles as well. One of our most common bats, common pipistrelle, will eat an incredible 3,000 mosquitoes in one night. So they're very useful little animals to have around.
9: It's starting to get to dusk now. We should soon pick up our first bats.
4: Now the way that all British bats hunt for their insect prey and navigate, or generally, is using echolocation. Um, Now what that means is they're flying around. They are shouting constantly and also listening for the echo, of that shout. Their shouting, their call if you like, is very, very high pitched and it sits outside of our hearing range. Some children, good hearing, can hear bats, but most adults can't. So what we do instead is we use one of these, which is a bat detector, and it takes that very, very high-pitched call and it converts it down into a frequency that we can hear. Now this particular type is a what's known as a heterodyne detector, that means it's tunable. And then we can adjust the frequency to listen out for the the bats that we want to hear, because different bat species echolocate at different frequencies.
9: So this is our first bat, which is up there somewhere, and it's a noctule bat. It's one of our biggest bats. Noctules often come out first because they're one of the bigger bats, so they have less to fear from predators like sparrowhawks. So another bat coming out which is the smallest British bat which is a Pipistrelle bat. So I'll my bat detector down to around 55 I think it's a soprano Pipistrelle yeah. and you can hear that's a lot faster call and hopefully that'll fly against the sky and we'll get to see it. So there's two types of pipistrelles: the a common Pipistrelle which as it's called sounding sluckiest at 45 kilohertz and then this 55 kilohertz or soprano pipistral. There he goes, just zooming up to the sky and crossing the sky there. So it's quite a little bit darker now so there's nothing they can see and so he's safer from things like owls and sparrowhawks that may still be just going to bed. There he goes, flying close to him there. And this one's actually a calling trail now, so I tune my bat detector down close to 45 to get the deepest call. And sometimes you'll hear kind of a raspberry noise, which is where it's closing in on an insect and catching it. So hopefully, if it comes back, we'll get that. So what you can hear is that it's generally trying to echolocate and hear what's around itself. When it closes in an insect it does that brrrr noise and that's when it's just catching one of them midges. But for me, I think that's time to say good night and leave the bats to their dinner. So I hope you enjoy the bat walk. Next time you're out in Royal Tower Park in the evening, uh, maybe look up and see what you can find.
0: We're now going to hear from Mark Batram, who led 12 of us around the Southdown estate and gave us an amazing amount of information about the state of Britain when the houses were built and why an MP said he wanted the houses to be homes, not hutches.
10: As uh, so I just before we set off, are there any, apart from me and Julian, are there any other South Downers here? Oh, I can see. Yeah, okay,
0: it's nice. The 19th oh, yeah. century statistician yeah, right. Charles yeah. Booth produced yeah, evidence that a third of Londoners
10: sorry, yeah. lived in so, yeah. poverty, right, so largely I'll due to the
0: increase in the numbers migrating the road, so, to yeah. the city as Britain industrialised and needed housing. At that time, 90% of the population lived in private rented accommodation. And of course, the rents were increasing. Post-World War I, there was one MP who decided that something needed to be done.
10: Now, the First World War was not going very well in 1915, and a nervous government quickly pushed through rent controls. This was a massive victory for the organised working class in Britain. One of the main organisers of this dispute was an Irish immigrant to the Lanarkshire Coalfields, a man called John Wheatley, who in 1922 would become the MP for Glasgow Shettleston. If there's any single figure responsible for this estate here in South Town, it's Wheatley.
0: At that time, the demand in housing was going up, so were the rents from landlords profiteering from the situation. Evictions inevitably followed, and in the post-First World War febrile atmosphere, Lloyd George's government passed the Housing and Town Planning Act in 1919. For the first time, this included a central government subsidy for local councils to build houses.
10: Then in 1924, in steps our friend John Wheatley, who by then was Minister of Health in Ramsay Macdonald's minority Labour government. Wheatley raised and extended subsidies for municipal house building by way of a new housing act. Construction increased at pace and scale. This was aided by the falling cost of building materials. As a result of the 1924 Housing Act, half a million council homes would eventually be built across the country, including these here in Southdown.
0: So how did Southdown come into being in Bath? In
10: 1919, there was a survey of all the homes in Bath, and they found that 900 were in, uh, found to be in an unsatisfactory condition, given that st- standards at the time were very, very low indeed. So 900 in unsatisfactory correction must be pretty bad. Almost a decade decade later in 1928, by which time construction here in Southam was well underway, Bath's chief medical officer classified um, between five and 550 houses in the city as unfit for human habitation. Very few of these properties, he said, could be satisfactorily reconditioned. So we know that there is slum housing in the St James ward in central Bath um, and also in the Walcott area. The land here was, was owned by private individuals uh, at the time, um, part of the site was tennis courts actually um, in the early to mid 1920s and was home to the um, Southdown Tennis Club. Um, Greenfield land on the outskirts of the city was considerably cheaper to purchase and develop, and crucially, it was easier to attract grant funding from the Ministry of Health. In
0: 1927, the city approved a scheme to build 270 houses, and construction started immediately. Rents were set and reservations were expressed about whether enough people would want to live there. But.
10: There seems to have been much curiosity and pride at the time of the estate's construction. According to the local paper, hundreds of folk walk up to the new housing scheme at Southdown on Sunday evenings. (laughs) Um, And then writing in the same paper in August 1927, Alderman Spear, a senior councillor, proclaimed... I can scarcely imagine a more healthy and invigorating district than Southdown, with the Twerton Round Hill at its back and the whole glorious prospect of Bath and its surrounding hills in front. It is an ideal neighbourhood, especially for young married people who wish to bring up their children under the best possible conditions. <laughs> uh, so, by October 1927, Phase One, the southern part of the estate, had been completed, and the Ministry of Health had approved the amended scheme extension. Of a further 122 houses on the northern side there, uh, bringing the eventual total to 270 homes. The scheme was actually delivered under budget and the city engineer Mr Sissons was publicly commended for his excellent work.
0: What do you like about Southdown estate?
10: It's quiet and uh,
6: it's, as estates go it's quite tidy. It's very green, a lot of trees
0: and, and how long I've, have you lived
6: here? Um, I've had a connection with Bath for about 20 years, but uh, we moved here seven years ago onto Sleighbrook Road. And, uh, yeah, I quite enjoy it. I'll often walk around here just if I want to clear my head at lunchtime. So, uh, yeah, it's not busy, is it? You know, so, uh, no, it's not busy today at all. it seems like all. people do take a certain amount of pride in their um, gardens and the, some neat hedge cutting.
1: We're
0: going past some very neat hedge cutting, yes. aren't we?
6: <laughs> you need a, a stepdad or two around here. But uh, it's interesting, some people still got the uh, original tiles, which is nice to see. Oh, I see,
0: yeah. yeah that's, so that's the
6: right. uh, red terracotta red ones here.
0: Oh, yeah, it's some beautiful bits of moss growing
6: on
10: uh, it. Yes, yeah. Just
0: over there, it's
10: amazing. Mm-hmm. Isn't it lovely to hear the birds in the background there? Yeah. So if you get bored of listening like to me... Listen... Up, I mean, oh, yeah, well, it's a nice. So how
0: were the houses constructed?
10: properties on the estate were constructed using traditional bath stone for the high standards of space, light and facilities set out in the Tudor Walters report of 1918. Houses with an additional front room, referred to as parlour houses, uh, and there's two, a pair of them behind you there. Can you see the side of the front door? You've got a spare living room, so a living room and a sitting room. So. Uh, Some of that possibly was to do with soldiers returning injured from the war that couldn't make it up the stairs. One could be used as an additional bedroom.
0: And without being able to look around now, I wondered how an estate agent would describe them.
10: Parlour type, such as the the pair behind us and the pair over the road as well, had three bedrooms, a bathroom, a sitting room, a living room and a kitchen. They had gas cookers and gas heated coppers. Non-parlour type houses had two or three bedrooms, bathroom, living room and a kitchen and gas and electric installations. John Wheatley was determined that houses constructed under this 1924 Act should be high-quality dwellings less affordable rents and he referred to them. He said, I want homes, not hutches.
0: Mark went on to say the Garden City movement had been a massive influence on the design of Southdown.
10: There was an enthusiastic description of port sunlight and Bourneville model villages in the local paper in 1907. These schemes were lauded for their social and educational facilities, low density, green space, allotments, limited size and picturesque style of cottages. Three years later when delivering a lecture on town planning, Bath sanitary inspector enthusiastically pointed out that the death rate at Bourneville was almost one third of the national average.
0: I I love the location, Um, yeah that's like talking about looking over over Bath but then you know the buffer with all the countryside outside of Bath which is amazing and I didn't realise Bath had before I moved to Bath. Um, I've got some really good friends here as well, (laughs) Um, well that's a lot of what Mark has been saying as well, there's a lot of green space, there's a lot of trees and wildlife. The principles of maximising light, providing front and back gardens, and planting tree-lined roads were all part of the design.
10: The estate is punctuated by these communal green spaces and the streets are lined with trees. Cars were scarce in late 1920s Bath, and the, yeah, right on cue. <laughs>
8: um,
10: <laughs> and the estate would have enjoyed a very different atmosphere from that of the more traditional dense urban tenements. Families moving up to Southdown to enjoy the fresh air and space of the new housing scheme may well have contemplated, however briefly, that a much brighter future lay ahead.
0: Thanks so much to Mark Batram for his amazing walk around the Southdown estate. And then the final day of the festival arrived, and it was the turn of the Circuit of Bath fundraiser for Julian House. When this happened back at the end of April, I spent the day interviewing walkers. And I got so enthusiastic, I signed up myself. Well, to do some of it at least, and certainly to get as far as the woolly cake stall. Here's how I got on It's quarter to seven in the morning, it's barely light, and I've just got into the car to go off and do the circuit of bath. I know, it's mad. There's nobody else's up. Oh, I don't think anyone in my neighbourhood is up. Right. I've got food. I've got drink. I've got... Oh! It's not raining. It's so dark, I've got to put my lights on. Off we go. I've got my boots, I've got my socks, I've got my fleece, I've got my waterproof. I've got my food, I've got my coffee. I've got my naked bars, I've got my apples. I've got my phone and I've got my phone charger. What's it? I'm ready Off we go I should say I'm with Jess who's the organiser supremo for Julian House Jess, how many people are taking part today? Um,
4: So we've got just over 500 people today which is brilliant 500 people and
0: uh, So here we are at Odd Down and lots of people have gone off already and uh, I'm with my party and we're about to go off
4: Exciting, Any tips? Um, eat lots of snacks, have lots of water and I would say keep going, don't rest for long because the feet hurt when you sit down <laughs> but you can do it
0: Thank you, okay Alright, are we ready gang?
4: Yeah. Okay, let's go gang. Small gang, oh, yeah it's, uh, You're going Newbridge?
0: We're going Newbridge, yeah, okay, so we're going that way Good
4: luck, okay. remember to
0: follow your route instructions Yeah, they're in my pocket Okay, okay. This, Bye
6: this is somewhere
0: So, we've reached Newbridge in two hours, so we've done it in two hours instead of two and a quarter. Andy, one of my fellow walkers, how do you feel that
3: went? Ah, that was very nice, very pleasant, beautiful morning, sun just coming through, but cloudy. uh, Dew underfoot, yes, it was just everything you'd expect, walking in the beautiful Bath countryside.
0: And we got here and the coffee stall isn't up yet, so I'm going to get out my flask and we're going to have coffee. So coming down the hill now from the top of Lansdowne, down the hill into Woolley, where the famous cake stall awaits. And there it is. And there's Julie, who I interviewed back in April. Still, still in charge of this amazing trestle table full of cakes. I'm going to have a banana bread and a cup of tea. Hello. We're now walking along the canal, towpath. It's about four miles from Bathampton Mill to the Angelfish Cafe at Dundas Aqueduct. Just beyond there. There's lots of bikes coming past. Here they come. Apart from them it's very peaceful. We've got the canal on the right and somewhere on the left is the river. Are a lot of bikes. <sighs> 16 miles on, and we're at the Angel Fish Cafe. There were four of us, there's now three. One person has gone home with aching limbs and blisters. So, gang. How is it for you
1: well it's been a fantastic day and i just can't wait to do the last four miles and get my certificate Um, we
0: really want our certificates (laughs) andy actually it's just you and me carrie because andy ducked out and went to see his mum in the middle didn't you
3: yes i get brownie points for that rather than the certificates
0: (laughs) you do you do so there's two of us Got four more miles. I think we should go. Shall we go? Yeah, let's go.
3: Let's go. Let's go. I can't wait.
0: We did finish it, but I was beyond recording anything at that point. I highly recommend it to anyone thinking of doing it next year. Bath is such a hugely beautiful place to walk around. That's it for this, the last episode of Footprints from 2021. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to previous episodes through your favourite podcast provider. And if you'd like to find out more about Bathscape, please do visit the website bathscape.co.uk or find us through social media. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pomi Harmer.